Welcome to Case in Point, produced by the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. My name is Ben Marin, and I'm the Multimedia Coordinator from the Communications Department. And with me today is Professor of Law, Allison Hoffman, from the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School, and Dr. Norma B. Coe, who is an Associate Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy from the Perlman School of Medicine. Also, they are both senior fellows of the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania. They're here to discuss their new paper, Long-Term Care Policy After COVID-19, Solving the Nursing Home Crisis. Also co-authored with Dr. Rachel M. Werner from the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. So Allison and Norma, thank you so much for being here. Uh, could you please talk a little bit about the current state of nursing homes in America? So the current state of nursing homes in America, I mean, nursing homes have, have been a core part of long-term care in the country for, um, for, for quite a while now. And, and going back over 50 years, and um, part of why we have had nursing homes at a centerpiece of long-term care is because when, um, when Medicaid started to pay for long-term care, it really preferenced paying for care in privately run facilities by licensed people. And so, you know, nursing homes uh, are largely a private industry. It grew up over time. It has become quite a large industry. Um, as you know, if you watch the news at all, nursing homes have really made it into the news lately with the, with the COVID pandemic. But even before that, a lot of people were asking what the role should be of nursing homes going forward. And we've seen a shift of more long-term care into homes and into, into um, you know, other non-facility um, settings, which is something that Norma and I both think about uh, a lot, as does our co-author Rachel uh, on, on this piece. So uh, you know, nursing homes were already scrutinized. They were already having problems with uh, compliance with regulations and uh, and other issues before COVID, and they've become even more under the spotlight with COVID. I agree. I, they're, they're a heavily regulated industry with problems from both the regulation and terms of management funding, uh, and they were in a period of flux long before COVID started, uh, and uh, COVID is only put a highlight, uh, uh, spotlight on all of the problems they were already having. Uh, so how has COVID-19 exposed the shortcomings of long-term living facilities and long-term care in general? Obvi the most obvious is just the bottom line that we see that, uh, you know, a disproportionate share of the deaths of COVID have been in nursing homes. And some of that is, is because of what nursing homes are, which is congregate living for older people who are more vulnerable to COVID and some of it is not. And so now people are trying to disaggregate those things. But I, the recent data I saw was that um, nursing homes had about 8% of cases and 40% of deaths. The, the numbers, depending on what you count a COVID death and who's counting differ a little bit, but you know we're up to 229,000 deaths in the US, I think as of today. And so 40% um, you know, of that, if it, if it still holds uh, over time is, is nearing you know, nearing 100,000 nursing home deaths of COVID, which is just, uh, which is, is, is um, shocking. And if you, if you follow the, um, you know, if you've kind of followed the, the, the impact of this, either from watching news stories or talking to people who have family members in COVID, a lot of people have 
had, uh, you know, loved ones in nursing homes die of COVID and not been able to be with them at the end of their lives and had to watch from afar and not really understood what happened. And so it's both been, you know, just kind of a tragic story watching it happen and has also been a little bit of a mystery. What exactly is going on and could this have been prevented? Yeah, I, I also think it has highlighted and exposed the fact that nursing homes are sort of second string in terms of healthcare uh, in this country. Uh, we're nine months into the pandemic now and there's still 25% of nursing homes are saying they don't have a week of PPE. Uh, so even the basics were, were impossible to get during the height of the, the pandemic. Um, you know, staffing shortages were only exacerbated. Uh, most of the people who work in nursing homes are female who may also have children and now at home as schools closed. Uh, most of them work multiple jobs or a lot of them work multiple jobs. And so there's just, there's just a, it just sort of hit at the worst possible time in terms of the population is the highest risk in terms of a death due to COVID, but also the staffing population is high risk as well. Um, uh, a disproportionate minority uh, uh, population that has been hard hit by the pandemic themselves, disproportionately low income, which has been hard hit by the pandemic, uh, as well as the economic downturn due to the pandemic. So it's just really exacerbated um, all of the shortcomings in this industry. You know, Norma, that piece you were just talking about that a number of facilities still report not having enough PPE is kind of astounding to me. How when you see when we saw, you know, the the, the pandemic really began at, at a at a nursing home facility in, in Washington State and it kind of grew from there. And the fact that we're this far in, nine months in now, and that that piece has not been ameliorated, addressed, insured, is just that to me is kind of unbelievable. I thought there was PPE for everyone at this point. Hospitals, definitely. Yeah. Um, but, but actually having access to N95s in a nursing home, like, you know, the, the latest research I saw, the reports were as of the end of September, during the month of uh, end of August to end of September, a quarter said that they had PPE shortages or were unable to provide a full week of PPE for their staff. Hospitals are starting to face shortages again now. Uh, yesterday, the news was is that gloves may be, you know, in short supply for hospitals going forward. And so, if we, as we see the numbers increasing, and as we see hospitals struggling again, and if the nursing homes are kind of second fiddle to the hospitals, it will likely not get any better, perhaps worse. So, what's needed to transform long-term uh, living facilities to ensure better care, um, especially now that we're kind of facing an upswing again? Yeah, so I think there's the short term and then there's the long term. So just to, you know, help us try to get through the winter, uh, I think, you know, the basics of PPE, uh, being able to protect our staff better uh, by providing them better wages if we, if we can afford it uh, and helping them stay, stay safe themselves with minimizing their number of jobs that they have to work and minimizing their, maximizing their ability to social distance and um, stay protected. I think are sort of the short-term things that we need to need to do immediately. Longer term, I think it's a it's a there's a variety of options that we can do, but I think we have to fundamentally rethink where we place nursing homes in our society and how much we think about them and how much we fund them. Uh, we've known for years that Medicaid has been underfunding uh, the care that's provided uh, to their patients in nursing homes, and nursing homes have to rely on 
higher uh, reimbursed patients from Medicare in order to cross subsidize uh, and make ends meet. And even with that, margins were going down prior to the pandemic. And now that we see hospitalizations going up and, and uh, healthcare utilization going up at this point in the pandemic, there's long-term financing and staffing and uh, thinking about what is the patient population that we really want to serve in these uh, institutions and thinking about the best way to actually serve them. Right now, we've been combining a bunch of people that need all sorts of care, and it's unclear if that's really the best way to provide cost-effective care in the future. The, the nursing homes... Where, where Norma just left off, the nursing homes both serve the Medicare population or people who are post-acute care, people who have been generally hospitalized and then need a short period of intensive kind of rehab, uh, hopefully to go home at some point. And then there's the residential, um, there's the residential residents who are there for the, you know, the longer haul and who just have a different set of needs. And right now they're being housed in the same way, uh, in, in the same facilities. And then as you can imagine, um, during a pandemic, when people are being discharged from hospitals, they're at higher risk of having COVID and then bringing it into the homes. And so, you know, that it really um, increases kind of the noticeability of that failing in, in a pretty dramatic way. I mean, there's another, and, and actually, well, one more thought on that is that there's a, um, there's a call right now, which, I'm, which makes me nervous to um, kind of end the use of nursing homes for long-term care. And one of the things that, uh, that, that Norma and I both write about and think about is if you shift care from facilities into the homes, what does that mean uh, and, and when does it work? And so for some people, it's definitely better to get their long-term care in what are called home and community-based settings where you know, they can either, they can age in place or they can move in with a, uh, you know, with, with a with usually with a child, a daughter or a son, usually a daughter and, um, and, and in some cases that actually works quite well. And so if, you know, if, if the um, insurance of Medicare, if Medicaid help to fund those kinds of models, for some people that would be perfectly fine. And for many people, it doesn't work well also. Either they can't live comfortably at home or safely at home and receive enough care in those settings to, you know, to, to, to stay well or get well, um, or it's, it is a, just a huge burden on their family members in a way that is, is detrimental in the long run. And Norma's work has, has really done a nice job of illuminating this piece and the costs that family members bear when you shift, um, especially more intensive care out of, out of nursing homes and into home settings. You can imagine, you know, a, an elderly family member moves in, perhaps, you know, has some cognitive failings makes it slightly more difficult, some uh, personal limitations or activities of daily living, living uh, limitations that you need to help them with. So that includes things like eating and bathing and dressing. Um, there's definitely instrumental uh, activities of daily li living limitations. That includes things like grocery shopping and, and um, uh, balancing your checkbook. And so, you know, an older person has having difficulty with some or all of those measures. Uh, moves into your house. What does it do to your free time? Uh, it disappears pretty quickly. Uh, what does it do to your work time? It also could potentially disappear and people choose different uh, ways to balance it all. But uh, we see a lot of women leaving the labor market, um, either taking lower paid jobs with more uh, hour flexibility or leaving the labor market altogether when, when caregiving becomes uh, too much. 
And we have estimates uh, where if you take into account all of that, the lost leisure, the, the increased stress, as well as the labor market effects, uh, both the day it happens, uh, the, the caregiving starts, as well as long into the future, because caregiving isn't normally a short-term thing. It's on average three to five years. And so um, when you take all of that into account, our estimates suggest that it's about $200,000 every, every other year, for, so $100,000 per year. Uh, to the cost to the, the family caregiver. Now that's money that's not accounted for anywhere because nobody's paying it, uh, but it's, it's a way to put a, a dollar value on all of the, the lost leisure and the lost labor market um, activities that people, people face when they have to do a caregiving um, a job as well. So if you think about that, what's interesting is $100,000 is a lot of money and could pay for a year in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. And if you were gonna do that, and if you, if um, in order to, preserve nursing homes in a way that um, is, is, is safe and is um, you know, just more appealing than what nursing homes today look like. There are a number of things that would need to happen. Norma alluded to one earlier, which is that the staff would have to be paid a lot more. There are people who are caregivers in nursing homes who are doing some of the hardest labor you could imagine, uh, both emotionally and physically, lifting people out of their beds, helping them go to the bathroom, making sure that they eat, making sure they drink enough, and, uh, you know, and helping them, especially as they near the end of their lives in many cases, and we're paying the minimum wage, and they can't get enough hours to even make enough money to support themselves or their families, and so they're having to work multiple jobs. So that, so that piece would clearly need to be addressed. The other thing that we've seen both in the, especially, well, we've seen, we've seen challenges in regulation for many years. And so even during the Obama administration, they passed new nursing home regulations to try to um, to try to reduce the, the, the number of, of safety violations and other kinds of facility violations and staffing violations in nursing homes. And the regulations are quite complicated. And then they started, they did start in the Obama administration actually enforcing these regulations. And then the Trump administration backed off of that enforcement. And so we saw the penalties really decreased um, remarkably from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. And there was an amazing um, story in the Washington Post yesterday talking about how, um, how these kind of some of the, the worst offenders during COVID have gotten very uh, little more than a slap on the wrist. So they gave examples like the place um, called Sterling Place in Baton Rouge that had 80 coronaviruses cases, 30, 15 deaths, and was fined $3,250 with 80 cases and 15 deaths. And another one, Heritage Hall in Virginia had 100 cases and 18 deaths and was fined $5,000. And these are all places that as they went through and started doing surveys, they were, they were finding violations in these facilities. And, you know, I don't know if it's this particular moment in time, if, um, if they're worried about putting facilities under that are going to be in need later, or if it's just a trend under the Trump administration of under enforcing some of these violations in terms of monetary penalties. But uh, that's one thing that we'll need to change going forward is that the regulations on the books will need to be clear and enforced. Yeah, I do agree that maybe maybe this isn't the time to be having stiff penalties. This is to the time where we actually should be investing a lot more, I feel like, in, in protecting the residents and the staff at nursing homes. But yeah, the, the number of violations that are still occurring, uh, even under you know the, the worst of times that we've had, is, is quite amazing. And I, I would rather see them try to get at the bottom as to why are these, these de deficiencies happening? Is it something that 
that we could actually help them with as opposed to like, let's tax them for, for misbehaving. It may be the case that there was nothing they could do about it. If it's a PPE shortage is nationwide, um, it's hard to say that I should be fined for that. But if it's something that I truly is mismanagement, then clearly that's a different different story. We also know the private nursing home chains have been, um, and, and the private equity firms that invest in them have been making a lot of money off of these nursing homes for a number of years. So it's a delicate balance. How do you penalize with, with monetary penalties that um, that don't come out of things like workers' pay or sufficient, you know, sufficient PPE on hand, um, and and yet recognizing that some of these facilities are kind of have become moneyed institutions off of government funding. So, is there anything to be learned? Uh, any models or aspects from uh, from other countries and how they approach this issue, whether it comes to forms of payment, whether it comes to regulations that can kind of maybe write the ship or at least address some serious issues that the long-term living facilities face? Yeah, there's a lot of different models that people that other countries have adopted. Um, ours is probably the most fragmented, which is uh, reflective of a lot of things about the U.S. and U.S. healthcare. Um, you know, but, but thinking about it in terms of an actual system as opposed to payer specific would, would uh, make a lot of sense, I think. And, and moving forward, we should we should think about the populations that we want to serve, not necessarily who is paying the bill. Um, and thinking about, um, you know, if if Medicaid needs nursing home beds and needs needs to cover nursing home beds, they sh they should be paying for the services that those residents actually need, and not relying on cross subsidization and that the nursing home has to have some percentage of other residents that pay through a different source in order to help pay for that care. Um, I think that it's uh, it was very short-sighted uh, in a lot of ways to just sort of think about the Medicaid budget in and of itself and, and focus there and then uh, just hope that the nursing homes can deliver the care that, is, that they promise that they can. Another thing we see as a, as a response of that is family members providing a lot of the care for, for loved ones even while they're in the nursing homes. And while you would want to see them visiting and spending time and reading with and maybe watching TV with and telling stories and other things, you don't want to have to rely on family members to make sure that somebody actually gets enough food in their body over the course of the day or you know, that their basic needs are met. Um, so you know, there's a lot of repercussions of, of the underfunding that has been quite chronic for, um, for Medicaid patients here. But one thing we, that is puzzling, and, um, and there's a lot to learn here, there's a lot of people researching and thinking about this, is that other countries, even who fund long-term care better than we do, still saw problems in their long-term care facilities during COVID. And some of this goes back to where we started, which is that it's a vulnerable population who are living in close, um, you know, in, in, in close quarters with each other. And that's just, you know, really challenging to manage in a pandemic. So going forward, there's no, going to have to be a response to, well, what do we do in moments of crisis and infectious disease in nursing homes? And a separate question is, how do we build a sustainable, high quality um, structure to support the, the, you know, the needs of aging Americans and others? Great, and I think you answered this a little bit, but with talk of a second, sur second surge of COVID-19 on the horizon, how can nursing homes best be prepared and supported today? Like I said, the short ones, you know, the easy ones are PPE. It should be easy. <laughs> the easy answer is PPE um, as a minimum, uh, increasing wages so that the staff can have one job and be stable at the job and get 
food on their own tables and their own families' tables would be great. I also think we really need to be thinking about how to get families back into the nursing homes and back visiting people. Um, there's nursing homes that, you know, have shut their doors in March and have not opened them to loved ones. And that's really taking a toll on the residents. It's taking a toll on the families and it's disrupting healthcare provision because oftentimes a family is a, a, a provider or a, a conduit of information about health and health status. And without that connection, I think a lot of care is being disrupted. And so I think those are going to be the major things we need to be thinking about to get us through the winter. I agree wholeheartedly. I think those are right on. And if you think about how do you do those things, the, you know, the question of how do you pay the caregivers more, the, the next relief bill should have hazard pay mm. for workers in nursing homes. It should just be a short-term measure to make sure that people, we know that, that the workers in nursing homes were a major conduit of spread of, of COVID-19 into the nursing homes. And, um, and there hasn't been comparable evidence showing yet that family members were that. And in part because it, it, the workers are having to work multiple jobs and have a harder time, um, you know, isolating themselves or or um, or ensuring uh, kind of you know their their own COVID-free status in a way that family members might be more careful about or able to be more careful about uh, with regard to their loved ones. Um, so you know, I think hazard pay as part of the next federal relief bill is really important, and I and I um, and I also fully agree that getting family members back in safely. You don't want a family member creating spread through a nursing home and you have to weigh that against the risks of this prolonged period of cutting people off from their families and loved ones and what that emotional toll takes on the health of, of both sides. But especially we're seeing more and more come out of the um, quick decline of a number of nursing home residents over this period of time who have just been isolated from the people who are bringing joy to their lives and giving them reason to kind of want to keep going and uh, so I would hope to see that thought through and done very carefully, but to see visitation managed, especially through the winter months, it's going to be hard, but it's, it's critically important. Great. Thank you. And is there, is there anything that I'm not asking you that the two of you would like to discuss? Yeah. I mean, the one thing we didn't discuss was testing. I think that that is an area that I think we do have reason to be somewhat optimistic on is that we've gotten more testing, uh, more rapid response time or rapid testing so that we can get a test and actually change our behavior based on it. Uh, you know, getting a test and having to wait seven days for a result is not useless, but it, it's not great. Um, and it's, it's, you know, if we can keep, keep making progress on the testing front, and we can expand our testing capability with responses within 24 hours, I think it'll change. It has the potential to really change uh, what we can do safely uh, over the winter when it is more important, and it's going to mean more indoor activities for at least the northern half of the country. We're also seeing, we're seeing lower numbers of hospitalization as a rate of total cases. And so to the extent that we're able to manage more cases, hopefully, you know, medically and outside of hospitals, that can uh, just reduce this, the, the, you know, kind of the significant um, impacts of COVID perhaps, uh, and, and might also reduce the number of cases in nursing homes if fewer people are having to be uh, discharged from hospitals in weakened states and then, and then coming into nursing homes. Thank you for your time, and if anyone in the audience would like to learn more about the Leonard Davis Institute, uh, just go check out ldi.upenn.edu.